sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books surrounding you are those used to research our show. And the individual to my right here, along with managing domestic duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. We have a bit of a themed show this time around, something featuring meteors, as we here in North America are expecting a major display this week at the end of May, if you're listening later. We'll be watching. If you watch, too, it will be like watching with us. And I heard from a listener or two saying they intend to watch also. I told my... Told your mother, maybe? Yes, but... I don't see why you have to be so angry about getting a watch for free. I'm told Mrs. Carswell's mother apparently snuck into the house when she was in town a few weeks back and hid her late husband's watch for me to find. She just wanted to give you something, and watch is special. I appreciate that, but I'm just finding it all a little hard to believe how it got there, hidden away on a top bookshelf. I told you, it wasn't me. I didn't put it there. So, uh, first your mother is flying over the gate in the wee hours, and next she's making herself invisible to sneak in and hide a watch? She's always doing little unexpected things. It's her way. It's not possible. Even if I forgot to set the alarm, I would have heard her come in, much less moving that library ladder to reach the top shelf. Why don't you just admit you did it? I can say that if you want me to, but it's simply not true. Anyway, why would I hide it instead of just handing it to you? Well... Well, if that's true, it doesn't make me feel very safe. I don't like the feeling that the house isn't secure and anyone can just sneak in. Maybe you should hire new gate guards. Yes, our Ukrainian security men just disappeared back in March. Presumably they're off killing Russians. But I agree, the house doesn't feel safe. What else did she do when she was in the house? Did she rearrange my desk? Or was she watching me while I slept? Things don't always stay where you put them, or things appear. I notice those library ladders at different spots in the morning sometimes. And a bar of buttermilk soap I had in the bathroom disappeared last Uh, Tuesday. You're changing the subject? Also, a container of cottage cheese in the fridge that had gone bad. When I opened it up a few days later, it was perfectly fine. Was that the cottage cheese I was eating? I think so. We could just go back and forth on this forever, so... True. We do have a show to do. Okay. Episode 88... Electric fairy rings and the slime from space. I am your host, Al Ridenour, and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining 
of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started this show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including a short bonus episode. I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. Coming over the downs, it being near dark, and approaching one of the fairy dances, as the common people call them in these parts, that is to say, the green circles made by those sprites on the grass, he all at once saw an innumerable quantity of pygmies, or very small people, dancing round and round, and singing and making all manner of small, odd noises. He, being very greatly amazed, and yet not being able, as he says, to run away from them, being, as he supposes, kept there in a kind of enchantment. They no sooner perceive him, but they surround him on all sides, and what betwixt fear and amazement, he fell down, scarcely knowing what he did, and thereupon these little creatures pinched him all over and made a quick humming noise all the time. But at length they left him, and when the sun rose, he found himself exactly in the midst of one of these fairy dances. This account from 1690 appears in John Aubrey's Natural History of Wiltshire as an actual experience related to him by his childhood Latin teacher, a Mr. Hart. When Aubrey and a schoolmate sought out the fairies the following night, there was nothing to see. But such disappointments are to be expected as... It is said they seldom appear to any persons who go to seek for them. Fairies are annoying like that. While fairies were often said to dance other places, uh, by ancient stones and barrows and bodies of water, when they danced in open fields or pastures, it was believed their ring dancing marked the turf with circles or caused mushrooms to sprout in that same formation. In France and Germany, it was the dancing of witches, and in Holland, these circles marked the spot where the devil churned his butter. Throughout England's West Country, it was pixies leaving rings called galley traps that might entrap anyone guilty of a secret crime, compelling him to walk in circles until the day he should confess the deed. The uh, Swedish bishop and writer Olaus Magnus, whom we heard from in our Kraken episode, in his uh, 1628 volume, History of the Goths, explains that the dancing of elves makes so deep an impression on the earth that no grass grows there, being burned with extreme heat. Likewise, in Austria's Tyrol, it's also heat, uh, scorched rings left by, apparently very small, circling dragons. However, more remarkable than altered grass is the overnight appearance of mushroom rings, something sometimes compared to the mythical appearance of stone circles raised overnight, with the uh, Irish Gaelic expression meaning one night's growth used to describe both. 
Outside of a folkloric context, the mushroom's sudden appearance after a night's dew or rain can be explained by the tremendous ability of the fungi's cells to expand with moisture. The circular configuration has to do with changes in nutrients in the soil. As a single mushroom drops its spores in its immediate vicinity, it multiplies first in a tighter cluster, and then, as these deplete an area, they push outward in search of nutrients forming a circle. Every season, of course, the circle expands, making older rings particularly large. There's one in France, for instance, believed to be seven centuries old, which measures about a thousand feet. Even when no caps are visible, mushrooms are still responsible for changing the color of the grass. Darker green circles caused via the nitrogen produced by breaking down the soil, or they create yellow or brown rings where the grass is strangled by the densely webbed wall of mycelium, the mushroom's equivalent of a root network. But back to more fanciful takes on these rings. Sir Walter Scott, in his 1803 collection of folk ballads, Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border, recounts a tale featuring a fairy ring, offering, in a footnote, his own thoughts on the subject, calling them Electrical rings, which vulgar credulity supposes to be traces of fairy revels. Now, this wasn't the cranky notion of a lone antiquarian, but rather a cutting-edge science of the day. A chief proponent of the idea of electric fairy rings was Erasmus Darwin, grandfather of Charles, a leading light in what's called the Midlands Enlightenment, a movement very earnestly devoted to sharing with the public a more rational understanding of the universe. And he was also a poet, and in his 1791 poem, The Botanic Garden, he writes, From dark clouds the playful lightning springs, rives the firm oak, or prints the fairy rings. Rives meaning splits, by the way. And a footnote details the process couched in more scientific language. Writing of thunderclouds, he says, Now this knob or corner of a cloud, in being attracted by the earth, will become nearly cylindrical, as loose wool would do when drawn out into a thread, and will strike the earth with a stream of electricity, perhaps two or ten yards in diameter. Now, as a stream of electricity displaces the air it passes through, it is plain no part of the grass can be burned by it, but just the external ring of this cylinder where the grass can have access to the air, since without air nothing can be burned. This earth, having been so affected, becomes a richer soil, and either funguses or bluer grass for many years mark the place. Electricity at the time was a particularly trendy theme, one often called in to more rationally, albeit erroneously, interpret any number of phenomena. More recently, you might hear the same sort of tortured explanations for crop circles or marks at an alleged UFO landing site. Jacques Vallée, in his 1969 book, Passport to Magonia, the volume which he first voices his psychological take on these saucers, makes a somewhat ironic reference to Darwin's theory. The formulation of this idea in terms of modern plasma physics will no doubt soon be provided by eager scholars. 
They would do well, however, to note the diameter of the cylinder mentioned by the Elder Darwin, two to ten yards, the diameter of the average flying saucer. Thanks to their overnight response to moisture, it's natural to connect mushrooms with rain, but there seems to be a cultural threat associating their growth more specifically with thunder and lightning, beginning with the Romans, or, or at least this is with truffles. Pliny the Elder, in his Natural History, writes, When there have been showers in autumn and frequent thunderstorms, truffles are produced, thunder contributing more particularly to their development. And the poet Juvenal, in his satires, remarks on the longed-for thunder in spring that replenishes the table with mushrooms. And odd as this all may be, it's not without a kernel of truth, as recent studies at Iwate University, Japan, have shown that electrifying the soil of shiitake mushrooms actually stimulated the mycelium into generating twice the normal yield of mushrooms above the ground. And uh, lightning could also produce a good crop of slime, or at least does so in this account of uh, what's known as... The Great Thunderstorm. Which occurred on October 21st, 1638. A contemporary pamphlet entitled... A Relation of Those Sad and Lamentable Accidents Which Happened in and About the Parish Church of Widdicombe, Near the Dartmoors in Devonshire. Describes the event. Upon Sunday, the 21st October last, in the parish church of Widdicombe, there fell, in time of divine service, a strange darkness, increasing more and more, so that the people there assembled could not see to read in any book. And suddenly, in a fearful and lamentable manner, a mighty thundering was heard. The rattling thereof did answer much like unto the sound, and report of many great cannons, and terrible strange lightning therewith. The extraordinary lightning came into the church so flaming that the whole church was presently filled with fire and smoke. Some said they saw at first a great fiery ball come in the window and pass through the church, which so frighted the whole congregation, that the most part of them fell down into their seats, and some upon their knees, some on their faces, and some one upon another, with a great cry of burning and scalding, they all giving themselves up for dead, supposing the last judgment day was come, and that they had been in the very flames of hell. Later, a brave soul, inspecting the ruined tower, came upon a round patch as broad as a bushel, which looked thick, slimy, and black, to which he put his hand and felt it soft, and bringing some thereof from the wall, came down the stairs to the people and showed them that strange compound. It was like slimy powder, tempered with water, he smelling there too. It was so odious, even beyond expression.
While this incident at Dartmoor generally is regarded as involving lightning, uh, what we would now call ball lightning, history records quite a number of other incidents of slime or gelatinous matter linked with fireballs, the bulk of these interpreted as shooting stars, uh, that is, meteorites. None of these are as luxuriously detailed as the Dartmoor case. However, in an 1819 issue of Edinburgh Philosophical Journal, I find mention of some sort of luminous object appearing in 1652 in the sky somewhere between Rome and Siena, something alleged to have been over 200 feet in size, which deposited on the ground gelatinous matter. And in that same publication in 1819 again, it's reported that viscous matter was said to have been found in the region after the fall of a fireball in 1796 in Lusatia, a region that uh, straddled modern Poland and Germany. R.P. Gregg's 1860 A Catalogue of Meteors and Fireballs mentions an incident from 1718 on the Indian Isle of Lethe during which a globe of fire touched down, leaving a jelly-like mass, silvery and scaly. These are only some of the more spectacular accounts featuring a substance associated with falling stars in folklore, a substance common enough to have generated dozens of names, the most common being Star Jelly, but also Star Fall, Star Shot, Star Slime, Star Slough, Star Spurt, Star Slubber, an old word for smear or daub, and there's also Star Slutch, an old word for mud or slush, and another one more commonly used is the sinister-sounding Welsh term pudraser, meaning rot from the stars, and there's the Latin purgamentum stellarum, meaning filth of the stars. Other similarly uh, slimy substances, uh, types of fungi not necessarily associated with falling stars, but sometimes interpreted as this same substance, are Witches jelly or Witches butter Troll butter Earth butter or the Spanish term from Veracruz, Mexico Caca de Luna meaning, as you can likely guess, feces of the moon. Translating the term from France, we get Moon spit. But the French also speak of Dew grease or Spring foam. Though it's not found in water or often on shores, the idea of something that vanishes quickly like foam is quite frequently part of these star jelly descriptions. Star jelly is also served as a fitting literary metaphor for writers exploiting the contrast between the beauty or hopeful wishes associated with a falling star and the loathsome heap of jelly it becomes upon landing. In The Talisman, one of Sir Walter Scott's Crusader novels from 1825, Scott has a character say, Seek a fallen star, said the hermit, and thou shalt only light on some foul jelly which, in shooting through the horizon, has assumed for a moment an appearance of splendor. Star jelly can also be a symbol of Satan's deception, as in the moralizing verse of Benjamin Keach's 1677, War with the Devil. Like to a star fallen jelly in the night, 
a false appearance and deceiving vapor, an ignis fatuous and a short-lived taper, a madness and a folly void of reason, or like dead salt when it hath lost its season. Or it can represent disappointment in love, as in the poet John Suckling's Farewell to Love from 1642. As he whose quicker eye doth trace a false star shot to a market place, does run apace, and thinking it to catch a jelly up do snatch. A number of explanations have been put forward to describe what observers have taken for star jelly, though no single theory would seem to fit in every case reported. One explanation is frog spawn, that is, the amphibian's eggs deposited in a clear jelly-like matrix. But as frogs lay their eggs in water, this theory requires that the substance be scooped up by uh, birds or other animals and then regurgitated elsewhere though one would think other stomach contents would be present in the substance, weakening this theory a bit. An elaboration of the frog spawn idea suggests that uh, the substance, like mushrooms, greatly expands when exposed to moisture, which it apparently does, and that supposedly the oviducts of frogs aren't eaten by predators so that a female frog might be killed on land and oviducts torn open and the jelly left uneaten. But none of these explanations account for the absence of the little black eggs that dot the clear jelly, nor do they account for the cases reported outside the frog's spring and early summer spawning season. Jelly fungi have also been suggested as a candidate. A couple of these go by the name witch's butter, which I mentioned earlier. While gelatinous, these fungi assume a variety of well-defined structures, little cones or ear-like shapes, for instance, uh, rather than the uh, shapeless blobs portrayed in star jelly accounts. And jelly fungi tend to be rather bright yellow or orange or pink, maybe brown, whereas if color is mentioned at all in star jelly accounts, it's only a gray-white cloudiness to the jelly. Also, jelly fungi are almost exclusively found on the trunks of old trees or rotting wood matter, narrowing the application of this theory. A similarly exclusive habitat and issues of color and structure would apply to the various slime molds, which have also sometimes been suggested as star jelly candidates. The most commonly accepted explanation for star jelly is something called nostoc, but what this designates in the real world, like many modern taxonomical names, seems to have evolved over the years. In the modern era, it was first understood as a type of algae, but now it's understood as a cyanobacteria. Common nostoc is always green, though the cyan in cyanobacteria would suggest blue. Uh, this perhaps as it's a cousin of blue-green algae. Nostoc is uh, not a bacteria per se, but a single-celled organism that uh, forms into filaments and these into colonies that look at different phases of its communal growth, uh, either like dark, rotting green grapes or seaweed or combination. And it takes on a more translucent, jelly-like appearance at certain phases of its life cycle. Consistent with star jelly's tendency to suddenly appear and suddenly melt away in stories, 
Nostoc, like mushrooms, swells with moisture, and when dry, shrivels to a dark, hardly visible mass. Unlike other candidates for star jelly, Nostoc is found all over the world in forests, grasslands, deserts, and polar regions, and in lakes and rivers, and occasionally in salt water. Nostoc is uh, harvested as a food in India and Indonesia, parts of South America, and in China, where it's known as fat choy. It's also used in Chinese medicine, and in earlier centuries was also attributed with medicinal properties in Europe, as in this listing from Robert James, a medicinal dictionary from 1744, in which he comments on its uncommon virtues, noting that the country people in Germany use it to make their hair grow. It is also accounted excellent in cancers and fistulas. Nostock was given its interesting name by the interestingly named Ariolus Philippus Theophrastus Bombastus von Hohein, who thankfully wrote under the name Paracelsus. You might remember this 16th century Swiss natural philosopher and physician from his remarks on uh, homunculi in our Frankenstein episode. He regarded Nostock as an effective treatment for liver ailments, so much so that in medicinal texts throughout the uh, early modern era, the word livers was sometimes used to designate this substance. The derivation of his coinage Nostock is hinted at in a passage from one of his volumes from the 1520s or 30s, the verbiage also gives you an idea of why his uh, name, or one of them, Bombastus, became a description for bombastic, uh, overblown language. Uh, he, for instance, uses the word plethorical, which uh, comes from an old meaning for plethora, designating a bodily state characterized by an excess of blood or fluid that is swollen. And uh, that said, here is the quote. Nostalk. Pollution of some plethorical and wanton star, or rather excrement blown from the nostrils of some rheumatic planet. It's what happens when planets have colds. Uh, this uh, passage has been taken to suggest that Nostock therefore represents an eccentric combination of an English word, he did use English sometimes, the word nostril, and the German equivalent Nasenloch. In alchemy, Nostock, thanks to its highly unusual traits, assumes a curiously elevated role. In 1751, in his volume, Courses of Chemistry, chemist and alchemist to the French royal court, Nicolas Lefebvre designates Nostock by another name popular among alchemists, Floscelli, meaning Flower of the Heavens. Flower, uh, presumably thanks to its uh, overnight blooming, so to speak. Lefebvre, however, disagreed that its source was actually celestial, claiming instead that the flower of the heavens is simply a vapor coming from the middle of the earth to surface during the time of equinoxes. Three years later, the Italian Giovanni Battista Capello, in his uh, pharmaceutical chemical lexicon, asserted that the livers of Paracelsus, or Nostoc, was always highly regarded by most mysterious chemists. They claim to get a medicine out of it to cure every illness 
and furthered a transmutation of quicksilver into gold. He goes on to describe how Nostok is to be collected on the equinoxes, giving the substance yet another name, uh, later employed in alchemical circles. The water of the two equinoxes. Three years later, Nostok is mentioned in the mysterious Mutus Liber, or Mute Book, one published in La Rochelle, France, around 1677. It's a name coming from its near-complete lack of texts, its secrets being conveyed instead through a series of enigmatic illustrations. One of these images captioned, The liquor of the Nostok, heavy with virtue, depicts sheets draped between poles to collect, like dew, this heavenly effusion, Below this, we see a man and woman wringing cloths into a vessel, presumably filled with the precious substance. And a related image was likewise interpreted in the 1926 volume, The Mystery of the Cathedrals by Fuccinelli, a pseudonym for an author never definitively identified, though sometimes thought to have been a physician, moving in the same Parisian circles as Marie and Pierre Curie. Fuccinelli's mysterious status was further elevated when his student, Eugène Cancelier, in 1922, claimed that he, in the presence of two witnesses, had transmuted 100 grams of lead into gold. But I digress. Uh, in uh, Fuccinelli's Cathedrals, he calls attention to an exterior relief sculpture at Amiens Cathedral, a scene sculpted on a medallion on the porch of the Virgin Mother. It depicts a figure watching as liquid pours from a cloud onto some sort of vaguely defined mass on Earth. Fuccinelli reads this as an adept comprehending the fall of Nostoc. And he goes on to offer his own etymology of the word, which he rather idiosyncratically derives from the Latin Nox for night. And from there, he launches into several paragraphs connecting the nocturnal fall of dew with the swelling of Nostoc and the great work of the alchemist being only successfully accomplished during these nocturnal hours when birth and growth is undisturbed by solar energies, etc., etc. He goes on, he goes on at some length. And now we'll get back to the identification of Nostoc with Star Jelly. While it may be the most uh, serious contender, it doesn't really explain all reported cases and one to point this out quite emphatically was Charles Fort. Uh, many of you will know Charles Fort, or at least the word Fortian used to describe the uh, sort of unexplained phenomena on which he wrote, uh, reigns of frogs and animals and strange objects, uh, unexplained aerial phenomena, and human bilocation and the like. Though uh, his eccentric writing style can be a major hurdle to many, his four books, beginning with The Book of the Damned in 1919, are seminal not only to uh, any study of anomalies or the paranormal, but are also important to the genre of science fiction. In fact, Fort began his writing career uh, with science fiction. He wrote one novel about a malevolent civilization secreted away on the South Pole and 
another about terrestrial events being controlled from Mars. Both of these, however, were burned by their author as he found himself frustrated in efforts to see them published. The receipt of a small inheritance in 1916, however, granted him the freedom to explore more thoroughly his uh, authorial ambitions and eventually resulted in him spending his days sifting through libraries and newspaper archives in search of reports of anomalous events, phenomena he regarded as being ignored or damned by science and society at large, hence the title of his first book. Fort's comments on Nostock in The Book of the Damned are in response to some clippings regarding what he calls the Amherst object, something reported to have fallen in 1819 in Amherst, Massachusetts. A report in Yale University's American Journal of Science from that year describes a falling meteor or fireball of the size as represented by an intelligent spectator of a man's hat of a brilliant white light resembling burnished silver. It appeared to strike the earth in front of the buildings and was instantly extinguished with a heavy explosion. It goes on to offer witness testimony suggesting why the site where the substance was discovered and the site of impact are identical, and then describes the mysterious material. This substance, when first seen by the writer, was entire, no part of it having been removed. It was in a circular form resembling a sauce or salad dish, bottom upwards, about eight inches in diameter, and something more than one in thickness, of a bright buff color with a fine nap upon it similar to that on milled cloth, which seemed to defend it from the action of the air. On removing this coat, a buff-colored pulpy substance of the consistence of good soft soap, of an offensive, suffocating smell appeared, and on a near approach to it, or when immediately over it, the smell became almost insupportable, producing nausea and dizziness. A few minutes' exposure to the atmosphere changed the buff into a livid color resembling venous blood. And skipping ahead a bit... It soon began to liquefy and form a mucilaginous substance of the consistence, color, and feeling of starch when prepared for domestic use. On November 13, 1833, 14 years after this article was published, there was a particularly magnificently ended meteor shower over North America with over 100,000 meteors estimated to have entered the atmosphere every hour at its height. An article by the Amherst professor of geology, Edward Hitchcock, discussed the phenomenon, and in a footnote, he addressed the journal's report on the uh, weird fall 14 years prior in Amherst offering the observation that settled the question in my own mind that there was an entire mistake in regard to the meteor described. And identifying the mysterious substance believed to have fallen from the sky as a species of gelatinous fungus which I had sometimes met with on rotten wood in damp places. Quite rightly, I'd say, Fort immediately took uh, Hitchcock to task on the issue of Nostock's green color being a poor match, 
And then, before even addressing the other disparities, like the uh, bizarre skin or whatever covering the 1819 object, he launches into an entertaining and characteristic rant against uh, two quick rationalizations of mysterious phenomena like this. These data are so improper, they're obscene to the science of today. But we shall see that science, before it became so rigorous, was not so prudish. I shall have to accept myself. That gelatinous substance has often fallen from the sky, or that far up or far away, the whole sky is gelatinous. That meteors tear through and detach fragments. That fragments are brought down by storms. That the twinkling of stars is penetration of light through something that quivers. His facetious theorizing here is a riff on another idea he frequently puts forward, that is... The Super Sargasso Sea. Which is a sort of uh, interdimensional limbo responsible for occasionally uh, teleporting things or people here and there and in and out of the world, all put forward as a sort of a sardonic answer to those uh, too eager for uh, tidy explanations. And uh, here are a few more examples of star jelly-like phenomena collected in Fort's book. He cites an 1826 copy of the French Journal of Chemistry and Physics in which we have a fall of a gelatinous substance after the explosion of a meteorite near Heidelberg, July 1811. And from R.P. Gregg's 1860, a catalog of meteors and fireballs, he mentions... The fall of a meteorite at Gotha, Germany, September 6, 1835, leaving a jelly-like mass on the ground. And one from 1835's report of the French Academy of Science. It doesn't relate the mystery jelly to meteorites, but it's interesting nonetheless. Wilna, Lithuania, April 4, 1846. In a rainstorm fell nut-sized masses of a substance that is described as both resinous and gelatinous. It was odorless until burned, then it spread a very pronounced sweetish odor. It is described as like gelatin, but much firmer, but having been in water 24 hours, it swelled out and looked altogether gelatinous. It was grayish. The last pointedly contrasting the difference with green nostoc. And uh, there are some similar reports I've stumbled upon myself, which I'll provide. Uh, the first issue of Scientific American from 1846 reported, On 11 November 1846, a luminous object estimated at four feet in diameter fell at Lowville, New York, leaving behind a heap of foul-smelling luminous jelly that disappeared quickly. And another from American Journal of Science from 1829, Mr. John Treat, a respectable farmer and man of veracity, stated to us that he was with the army of General Washington. On the night previous to the Battle of Brandywine, as he was standing sentinel, a shooting star fell within a few yards of him. He instantly went to the spot and found a gelatinous mass, which, if we recollect right, was still sparkling, and he had kept his eye on it from its fall. And another from someone who knew someone famous, 
This from the uh, mathematician and clergyman baden Pohl, uh, father of uh, baden Pohl, founder of the Boy Scouts, in an 1855 edition of Reports of the British Association, he writes about an incident that occurred near uh, Koblenz, Germany, something recounted in a letter he'd received from R.P. Gregg, whose uh, catalog of meteors uh, was earlier quoted. Professor Gregg's uh, German acquaintance, 11 years earlier, while taking a night stroll, had witnessed... A luminous body descended straight down, not 20 yards off, and heard it distinctly strike the ground with a noise. They marked the spot, and returning early the next morning as nearly as possible where it seemed to fall, found a gelatinous mass of a grayish color, so viscid as to tremble all over when poked with a stick. As we move into the 1900s, fewer of these reports are to be found, or at least uh, fewer connecting mysterious gelatinous substances with meteorites. Part of this probably has to do with the consolidation of science under academic institutions, rather than the uh, uh, more freewheeling Victorian attitude encouraging uh, enthusiastic and educated amateurs to report observations. Charles Fort describes this sort of uh, institutional exclusion of potentially valuable data with a uh, characteristic metaphor. Science is a turtle that says that its own shell encloses all things. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door, all around the wall, a splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. It's sometimes asserted that the 1958 movie, The Blob, starring a young Steve McQueen, was inspired by one of these stories of gelatinous substances and meteors, by a particular case, one I'll address shortly. However that may be, we do know what producer Jack Harris wanted out of his film, as he's been quoted on his desire to... Make a movie monster that is not a guy dressed up in a suit. Some kind of a form that's never been done before. One possible inspiration is Joseph Payne Brennan's novella Slime, published in Weird Tales in 1953, so uh, five years before the film's release, or at least Brennan believed this was the case, as he brought a mostly unsuccessful lawsuit against Paramount for uncredited use of his story. However, uh, Brennan's gelatinous creature rises from the depths of the sea rather than falling from space. It's uh, black and fast-moving rather than red and slow. And his story involves no growth of the creature, its actual size being unclear, but by my reading, a fair bit smaller. Those who think the film was inspired by true events, however, point to a newspaper report of September 26, 1950, one describing something bizarre encountered by Philadelphia police the previous evening during their patrol. The location of the incident in Philadelphia is believed to support this theory as uh, Harris and the film's director were both natives of Philadelphia and the production was filmed in uh, nearby towns. However, no suggestion is made in these newspaper stories that the thing encountered was a living creature. Rather, the uh, newspapers characterize it as a particularly weird type of flying saucer. Uh, flying saucers being a particular interest at this time as the uh, term had just been coined three years earlier. 
What's more, the thing in the original stories is actually never described as being gelatinous. This appears to have been added in a 1964 recounting of the incident in an issue of Fate magazine, a detail that's been absorbed, a blob-like, let's say, into later accounts. However, the original account does share something in common with reports of star jellies. It is evanescent. It's actually lightweight and fragile, rather than the uh, ponderous mass of strawberry jam that menacing victims in the film. Of the two nearly identical reports that appeared immediately after the event, both highlight this strange evanescent quality in their headlines. From the Philadelphia Inquirer, It's gone! Flying saucer just dissolves! And the only other paper to immediately report on it, at Camden, New Jersey's Courier-Post headlined their article, Cop says saucer just dissolved! And then opened with, Maybe, suggested patrolman John Collins. It was one of those fairy rings you read about in kids' books. Circling back as we have feels like a good place for me to step back and let Mrs. Carswell finish our show by reading this uh, September 27th article from the Philadelphia Inquirer. I think it nicely conveys the sort of uh, ethereal, perhaps even interdimensional qualities we associate with fairy rings. Four South Philadelphia police officers had a new explanation that night for what happens to those flying saucers people are always seeing. They dissolve. That's what happened last night to the airborne object first seen about 10 p.m. by patrolman John Collins and Joseph Keenan. The two officers said they were patrolling in a red car on Verk Boulevard near 26th Street when through the windshield, they saw what appeared to be a parachute drifting slowly down from the upper air ahead of them. When first seen, the thing was at treetop level, they said, and appeared to be about six feet in diameter. It settled in an open field near 26th Street. After summoning Sergeant Joseph Cook and Patrolman James Casper, his driver, they went into the field to investigate. When four officers stood a few feet from the object, they said, and turned their flashlights on it, whereupon it gave off a purplish glow, almost a mist, that looked as though it contained crystals. Colin stepped forward and tried to pick the thing up. The part of the mass on which he laid his hands dissolved, leaving nothing but a slight, odorless, sticky residue. Within 25 minutes, as they stood and watched, the entire substance had evaporated. It was so light, they said, that it did not even bend the weeds on which it lighted. Sergeant Cook notified the FBI a little sheepishly, since he pointed out he'd have nothing whatever to show them when they arrived, except a magic circle on the ground, where something purple and quite evanescent once had been. Do you believe in fairy
I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere if you do enjoy it. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. When you contribute through Patreon, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours of work I end up putting into each show. Pledge commitments begin at $1 and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, a reading from something in our library, given the sickle treatment, of course. Other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show soundscapes you hear under the narration, show scripts, my Krampus book, the Bone and Sickle candle, and unique and hand-packed mystery kits, now including certain handcrafted items by yours truly. I should also point out that when you join, you can immediately access the entire back catalog of posts and bonus episodes if you're at that subscriber level. Our latest crop of supporters whom I'd like to thank include Alex McKinley, Casey Starr, Patrick Muir, and I'd also like to thank Malochio for upping his or her pledge. Bowden Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Reidenauer. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>